This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is brought to you by ArtTactic.com. Check out the website now and you can view our latest report, Harold Ancart, the Artist Market Report. Harold Ancart's market has really taken off over the past year. He's very much in demand, very fascinating artist market to look at, especially since he joined David's Warner Gallery. You can check out that report on ArtTactic.com as well as many other great reports. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. As you may know, and the podcast, as well as Art Tactic in general, we really focus on the contemporary art market, whether that be within the U.S. and Europe or other parts of the world, such as Asia or the Middle East or Latin America. But every once in a while, we like to venture out outside of the contemporary art space and focus on a different area of the art world. And that's what we've done in this episode this week. As we chat with Freya Sims, she's the CEO of Lapata, the Association of Art and Antique Dealers. They actually had their annual Art and Antiques Fair just last week in London, so we thought it'd be great to have Freya on the podcast to talk to us about the how the fair went, and more generally, just chat with us about the state of the antiques market at the moment, how it's been trending the last five or ten years. Um, you also touch on a few other interesting topics, such as you know the fact that in, in the contemporary space, there's a lot of focus now on female and minority artists. Are we seeing any of those kind of trends in the antique space? Um, and then we ask her about you know how often does someone actually find the dream and find some incredible antiques piece in their home in their attic? Is that something that actually really does happen? And if someone thinks they have found something great, what should they do? So we hope you enjoy this fun episode we have with Freya, stepping outside of our comfort zone a little bit and talking about the antiques market with her. Thanks so much. The annual Lapata Art and Antiques Fair just happened this past week in London, and Freya is so kind enough to join us um, after a very long week to speak with us and tell us how the fair went. Freya, thanks so much for coming on. Pleasure, pleasure. Um, I think on balance, it went pretty well. I mean, I, I'm sure you're all very aware, your listeners, but we're right in the middle of our kind of Brexit, uh, push me, pull you negotiations. Um, so it's always kind of quite difficult when you're when lots is going on politically outside of an event. Um, you know, you hope that that's not going to affect things and that people are going to have the appetite to kind of browse and buy and enjoy it. So um, I would say the visitor uh, numbers were pretty strong uh, and there was lots of kind of buying across the different disciplines and not everybody um, had a great fair. It's kind of tricky uh, climate in some ways, but but actually there were some really uh, important items as well as some really kind of um, nice, interesting, you know, but but less expensive pieces. So we, we had sales across the board. Yeah, and so for maybe some of our listeners who aren't based in London, who weren't able to attend, um, tell us what were what were a few. I know there's a lot of things being sold in the fair, but what were a yeah. few of the highlights <laughs> that are uh, you know maybe worth mentioning here? Yeah, well, I mean, I I think I you know like like a kind of uh, art and antiques fairs, um, we sort of span you know thousands of years in terms of the pieces that are available, so from antiquities right up to the present day. Um, some of the kind of special items, um, there was a, a very interesting painting um, presented by the Parker Gallery, uh, which has two museums sort of battling over it at the moment, uh, which is a sort of transitional piece. It's by um, an artist called Francis Heyman, but he kept having migraines and he was painting in the kind of Hogarth style. Um, 
and he needed someone to help and do the background and do the dogs. It's a commissioned portrait of two children with their dog. And uh, so he, he chose Thomas Gainsborough uh, as the person to help him do that. And so it's this kind of very interesting piece because it sort of transitions between that kind of the Hogarth uh, style of portraiture and sort of a very English school um, into that kind of new romantic sort of um, uh, portraiture with the, using all the landscapes and, and um, different kind of settings that Thomas Gainsborough really sort of brought to the fore in England. So that's a, a really interesting piece. Um, we had um, some wonderful kind of uh, cabinets. Um, well, some of the sort of uh, one of the great heroes in, in the UK is uh, Lord Nelson uh, for the Battle of Trafalgar. And uh, we had uh, an amazing set. Of, so we, funnily enough, we seem to have a few pieces of Nelson. It's not an anniversary or anything, but with different dealers. So we had a set of silver plates um, that you, we used on Victory. Uh, which were quite, they were by the um, Silver Smith Paul store. So again, a great name, but actually they were fairly simple in their execution because, you know, when you're having things um, on a dining at sea, you want to keep it, you know, nice, but fairly simple. Um, but we also had another of our members, um, Timothy Millett, um, had this amazing tiny little wooden box with silver plaques on it. And in each corner, it had a reference to the four kind of big battles that Nelson's fought at. And then inside the plaque, it said, this box contained the mortal remains of Nelson. Um, and it was a, a piece. So when Nelson died at sea, they put him in a barrel and in full of brandy so that they could preserve his body. So they basically pickled Nelson until they could get him to um, a lead coffin on a, another boat and take him to shore. And so this um, box is made out of the barrel that he kind of first went into when he died. Um, we also had lots of really important pieces of jewellery, a lovely little uh, Art Nouveau Picajour, um enamel um, and, and sort of transparent butterfly brooch, but also, you know, lots of kind of pieces, recognisable pieces like Cartier, uh, Van Cleef. And then uh, in the picture side, we had we had um, impressionists sort of from Renoir, but also some quite interesting uh, post-impressionists um, and some um, paintings going for kind of six-figure sums. Um, and then, you know, what you would expect with an art and antiques trade association that although is international is based in the UK, uh, some good sort of uh, Georgian as well as sort of provincial furniture. So on the podcast, we in Art Tactic, we often focus mm -hmm. on the contemporary art market, but I think the antiques yep. market's very interesting. You know, it's in the headlines often, uh, so we kind of observe it from mm -hmm. a distance. How would you overall describe you know, the antiques market at the moment? And I guess what's it been like over the past decade or so? Has there been a lot of volatility? I, um, I will do that. But may I make a point, actually, which I think is quite interesting from, yes, from what you just said, is that one of the, uh, a very influential key collector in the UK, who has also kind of done a lot for women artists, she came uh, and she was helping me. Uh, this is somebody called Secret Kirk. She came and she was helping me on the selection committee um, because we bring in a, um, a selection committee of influencers, museum curators, interior designers to help us select the, the um, objects of the fair. And she's a contemporary collector. And she bought uh, a small little Mexican figure that was thousands of years old, but very kind of simple. And also uh, the death mask of William Blake. So, I mean, it's just quite interesting that, that when you see uh, people kind of buying across disciplines,
and the, the desire, you know, there are many things that are kind of in an art and antiques fair, which actually sit very well within a contemporary collection. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Definitely. Um, and then yeah. I'll go back to your question. Sorry. Of course. Yeah, no, no, I think it's a good point. I think you do <laughs> see, you know, you know, many collectors, they don't want to just be put in a box and they, um, mm, exactly. you know, I think you see more and more collectors uh, collecting across different, um, you know, different segments of the market. And yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, and then back to, sorry, so it was about the kind of volatility in the antiques market. Was that your question? or How is the antiques market at this time? And has it, over the past five, mm -hmm. ten years, has there been a lot of, um, you know, volatility in the market? Has it been kind of consistent? Mm -hmm. What's what's kind of the, re if you're recapping, you know, the la what we are now and, you know, where it's been the last ten years? Or where so. we are now and where it's been. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite interesting in that what what is difficult about the antiques market to kind of do a broad brush is that, of course, it, it crosses so many disciplines. So, you know, what, how you might kind of talk about uh, furniture as opposed to modern British pictures, sculpture or jewellery, they all have slightly different markets. And I would say that the jewellery, you know, it stays consistent because of the value of the material, if it's gold or precious stones and, and for their carat rating or their signed pieces. Uh, and that, I think, has not just held but continues to develop. Um, I think that where you look at, uh, so even even further back than 10 years ago, uh, in the kind of 80s, late 80s, early 90s, and you saw this kind of very much in the UK, but also in the US, was it all went a bit chintz-tastic, you know, the kind of floral prints and everything matched. It was sort of very flowery and lots and lots of um, walnut and Georgian furniture. And it was kind of a room that was full, but, you know, you tried to match the periods. And it, it, there was kind of a seismic shift when it went from that to this kind of toxic bachelor look of kind of chrome, black leather and white and clean lines and just one picture on a wall. And I think um, it took a little while for that to kind of change. And, and, and I think also the Scandinavian design market sort of uh, developed. But where I think we are now is a much more eclectic look and that kind of century mashup and mixing different styles. Um, and people kind of use maybe accent colors and, and themes to draw things together rather than trying to be specific about a period or a time so you know you could put a, a wonderful um uh antiquity you know uh sculpture against the side Twombly. i mean that that is a, a fantastic juxtaposition and looks very good um i think the other area so where it kind of suffered a little bit i would say is the sort of what we see as the traditional brown furniture not at the very high end when you've got really important pieces and and sort of museum quality but at the sort of middle to lower end of the market where maybe things had been very expensive in the 80s, 90s. So that kind of the value dropped off and, that, and it's difficult when people have a lot of stock at a certain that they've bought at a certain level to then kind of work out what, what the market is. Um, but I can see that kind of changing and, and lots of young dealers coming into it and lots of opportunities because certainly what we're seeing um, and, the, and there's been quite a few reports both borne out by um, Art Tactic but also Claire McAndrew is um, this the millennial generation kind of going back and buying art and antiques at auction and seeing you know from two points of view maybe not just the sustainability side because of course the, there is a much um, the carbon footprint for antiques is almost negligible um, I, I mean it's different when you're looking at shipping at fairs but if you're actually buying something to decorate your home uh, it, that is you know something that stood the test of 300 years 
I mean, there are things now that probably it would cost you much more money to source, you know, the oak, make the piece than it would be to buy something that's thousands of years old. uh, Oh, it's a thousand, sorry, excuse me, but a couple of hundred years old. And, um, you know, uh, sort of re-love it and put it in your home and you're not sort of chopping down any forest and you're not doing anything. And so I think there are two things. There's a sort of sustainability side, more than two, actually. There's a kind of a desire to... Uh, bring back some sort of texture and, and interesting things into homes, not have this kind of cookie cutter look. Um, and also um, to, you know, uh, see where there's good value, because actually antiques are representing pretty good value as well, I would say at the moment. Yeah, that was that's a really interesting uh, point that you raised. I'm curious to, you know, this eco-conscious kind of shoppers, is that you know, that's definitely not something we have going on, uh, you know, in the traditional kind of contemporary art. Is that, yeah, to what extent is that uh, having an influence, um, you know, on shoppers and, you know, people that are considering antiques as opposed to newer furniture because of, you know, thinking about the environment? So I think um, when you look, so I think it's kind of uh, uh, a sort of an eco-conscious or or social conscious, but I think it is also kind of uh, value-led. So when you're looking at those generations, those those two things, trying with them, you know, they want kind of transparency. They want sort of, um, you know, uh, something that has a provenance and a story to it, but but preferably something that, that doesn't sort of affect or harm anyone in the making. So we're definitely seeing that. Uh, I also think we had a report, quite an interesting report recently for our kind of Office of National Statistics, where we saw um, a a kind of a rise in June. So the retail market had kind of gone uh, down. And I think that is, you know, very much to do with kind of Brexit and people on pause, just not wanting to spend on on kind of things that they don't necessarily need. But what, what had a very good surge was um, kind of vintage, um, kind of pre-owned and and the art and antique sector. So I think that that's, um, you know, uh, uh, maybe it's 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 partly taste, maybe it's partly social, but it, that all of those things are contributing to this kind of upsurge, if you like, of people um, and, and younger people coming into the market who weren't in it. Yeah, and w- another trend we're seeing in the contemporary space of especially is an increased attention on female minority artists. You know, they were often overlooked for many years. Are there any kind of movements like mm. that going on in the antique sector? Um, yeah, because I think you very much see that in the, I mean, the fine art market crosses into the antique sector as well. So when you're looking at old masters and things, there's certainly exhibitions are also helping, you know, curated shows. Uh, they're kind of doing things where they're looking at works by Angelica Kaufman and, so right back, um, uh, Artemisia Gentileschi, you know, there, there's lots of people who are trying to kind of bring women back into it that way. Um, and then I suppose women have always been very much represented by the craftsman side um, and uh, sort of trying to give more of a name and, and um, more attention to that. But um, I think that it's difficult because, you know, there are certainly a lot of things that are named and signed, but then there's there's many things that are kind of more humble provincial pieces, let's say, that don't necessarily have a name on them. So it's hard to qualify whether it's a male or female maker, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that make, that definitely makes sense. It feels like you often read about these stories in the paper about someone who discovers some kind of antique in their home or their attic. Mm-hmm. It ends up being worth something. 
Um, I guess is that is that really how often does that really happen? Is that kind of the dream scenario? And yeah, so I would say that you know the very nature of an antique dealer is that there is that that kind of holy grail. You know, at heart, they're detectives. Um, who are looking for that next thing or the thing that they haven't seen. Um, I think the reason why the Antiques Roadshow continues to be one of the most popular antique shows in the world is because people are always looking to see what that is, you know, what might be discovered in your attic and whether it's of value or not. Um, and certainly, you know, we had we had an amazing pair of um, cabinets at the fair, which are truly museum quality. I mean, they're kind of worth half a million. They're incredibly rare, huge workmanship. Um, and they had been discovered in two different places. And the dealer had been able to bring them back together. Um, and, you know, they didn't know what they were. In fact, actually, the Nelson box that I was talking to you about, that was a, a discovery. Because the person who sold it had no idea, had missed the inscription. Um, and when our kind of dealer found it, looked at it and did a bit more research and, and got his loop out and had a good look, then the provenance um, became apparent. Yeah. So, so, there, so there are, you know, there are still... It can happen, you know, yeah. It's still worth having a look at the back of the house, in the attic, at your grannies. Yeah, what, um, I guess what <laughs> advice would you give someone who thinks, you know, maybe they found something? Um, where to go. Yeah, yeah, I think her, I guess, yeah, I guess that whole, you know, what's the next step, typically? Yeah, I mean, it, I suppose it depends what they want and what it is. So if it's something that is um, uh, really, you know, I, I would say, you know, many dealers can kind of look and value and give you an idea. And if you wanted to sell something with a dealer, um, you probably end up spending less than if you did at auction in terms of, uh, any kind of commission or things like that so they can sell it on behalf of you or buy it from you. So that can be a very uh, good thing because it depends on what level of value with the commissions that auction houses charge. If it's not really valuable, it's maybe better to go via a dealer as well. And sometimes dealers have more time uh, to apply to something to really kind of look and study it. Um, if it's something that is, uh, you know, kind of really old, rare treasure, you can sometimes go to museums. But I think if you look at a trade association like Lepada or Barda, look at the websites, um, or if not, go to an auction house and kind of take it in to be valued. But we also have actually on the Lepada website, as well as all our members, we have a few members there who are general valuers. So you can kind of look at that, and that's quite a good starting point because if they, they will probably be able to help with a lot of things, but if they can't, then they can kind of push you in the right direction to something that's more specialized. Drea, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. and you know, letting us know how this year's edition of the fair went um, and also chatting with us more broadly about the antiques uh, market. If our listeners want to learn more about Lapada, what's the website they can visit? So it's lapada.org, O-R-G. Super. Freya, thanks so much again. We really appreciate it.